John chapter 7. We're going to begin at verse 37. Um, Tonight we are talking about more water in John's gospel. It's a big theme in John's gospel. Um, And and we're we're revisiting it again. And so um, first, before we begin, well, I've got a couple of things I want to do. The first thing I want to do is a little quiz. I like to do this from every now and again. Um, Little quiz for for recapping where we've been at so far in John's gospel. So we haven't done this since we've moved into John's gospel, but I've got some questions. Um, One of the things that that happens in John's gospel a lot as well is we hear a lot about um, sort of names or titles um, that that Jesus has given. Um, We hear hear a a lot of different ones in John's gospel, some really, really good ones. And almost every lesson that we have like been in, every text that we've been in, every story we've looked at, there's been some sort of title or name that Jesus has either given himself or been given um, to by others or proclaimed by others. And so we're going to start with a question on that specifically. All right, we're going to go back to our first path, the first story that we looked at. It was in John 1. Does anybody remember what John the Baptist calls Jesus? got your Bibles, you can cheat. I'm okay with that. John the Baptist. Remember um, specifically in this case that we learn in John's gospel that Jesus' first two followers were actually followers of John the Baptist first. And it's this particular thing that John says about Jesus that makes those first two followers want to um, follow behind Jesus and and see where Jesus is going. He says... um, John the Baptist says, look, it's the, the, do you know? I think so. We'll go for the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Yes. So, so he says it twice. He says the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then again, later he says, look, the Lamb of God. Um, all right. Second one, you might remember in that first lesson as well. Um, and this, you've got a couple of options that you can come up with. Nathaniel, who ends up being one of the first uh, disciples, um, Nathaniel was the one who doubted that the Messiah, that Jesus of Nazareth, could be the Messiah because specifically he was from Nazareth. Remember, he has that great line, can anything good come from Nazareth? And so Nathaniel doubts that Jesus could be the Messiah because of that. But then he eventually gets convinced because Jesus is able to, Jesus makes this comment along the lines of seeing him under the fig tree. Um, and so by, by, by kind of showing that he saw Nathaniel there under the fig tree, Nathaniel falls to his knees and he gives Jesus three titles, three of them. Can anybody remember any of the titles that he gives them? Attendance sheet for that far back. <clears throat> this is the same lesson, though, where he talks about Jesus being the Lamb of God. Oh, well, I remember that one, yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'll see 
So there's three titles that uh, Nathaniel gives. Um, the first one is a pretty common one, rabbi, which means, anybody know what rabbi means? Teacher, yes. Um, so he gives them the name rabbi, and then he says, son of God, and then he says, you are the king of Israel. So those are the titles that he gives. All right, third question. In John chapter 2, when you'll remember in John chapter 2, there's the commotion in the temple. Jesus goes into the temple and he disrupts the buying and selling that's taking place there. Jesus is angry and frustrated that they are treating the temple, or the, his father's house, as a marketplace. Um, in that lesson, what is revealed about Jesus's, Jesus in relation to the temple in Jerusalem? Who, like, what is something about Jesus's identity in that text that we learn about Jesus? He reveals this about himself. Or rather, well, he does reveal it about himself with help from John, the commentator. <laughs> Anybody have their Bibles open to that chapter? That's where, that's where he's talking about the temple. Right. And he says, he says, um, he's talking about how the temple was, will be torn down. Right. And will be raised again in three days. Yeah. Will be rebuilt in three days. Right. And that was a, that was a, uh, he was alliterating himself about that on that and that's what that's what John helps us with right so in that text specifically um, Jesus is um, Jesus is the new temple right so what the temple represents is God's dwelling on the earth and so in that text Jesus is the temple not seen her no um so his body is the new temple, the place of God's dwelling on the earth. That's what we learned in that lesson or in that story. All right, number four, what is the identity of Jesus in John 4 when he interacts with the Samaritan woman? Right, yes. So in that story, we learn that Jesus is the living water. In that same story, um, the Samaritan woman, is she receives that living water, her life has changed, and she goes into the Samaritan village, and she tells others about them, and then Jesus ends up spending a couple days with the Samaritans. What is it that the Samaritans call Jesus at the end of that text? Yes. So the savior of the world, savior of the cosmos um, is who Jesus says identified by the Samaritans, which is particularly significant since the Samaritans are not Jews, right? They're not practicing Jews. Um, they're actually kind of ostracized from the Jewish community. And so they identify that he's not just the savior of the Jews. He's the savior of the world, um, which I just kind of like some of these connections. Um, if, you, if we jump back to the second question I ask about Nathaniel, Nathaniel identifies him as the king of Israel, right? 
That's important for Nathaniel as a Jewish man, is that Jesus is the Savior, you know, specifically the King, the Savior of Israel. And then as we go along, we learn about Jesus, we discover more about Jesus in the story, and we find that he's not just the King of Israel, he's not just the Savior of Israel, he is the Savior of the whole world. All right, so this one might be even more challenging because I'm not going to give you too many hints on this one. But So without any reminders of the lesson, does anyone remember what Jesus was identified as last week in our lesson? This would have been John chapter 6. The title of our lesson last week was You Are What You Eat. <laughs> I know it's the end of the day and I ask all these questions. The bread of life. Bread of life, yes. Jesus is the bread of life. All right. We're going to watch a video, and I want to just kind of tell you about what it is before we start it. Um, this is an important part of the story that we're getting into this evening in chapter 7, beginning at verse 37. <clears throat> this is uh, what's happening up to this point is a festival, a Jewish festival is taking place. Um, we hear a lot, a lot about the Jewish festivals and Jesus' participation of them in John's gospel. Not just the Passover festival, but a, but a couple other festivals as well. And so in our text, another festival is happening, and Jesus has gone to Jerusalem and participated in the festival. Um, and the name of the festival is the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, um, and the, the Hebrew word is Sukkot. All right, and so that's the language that this lady is going to be using in this, um, in this video that we're going to watch. But she's going to tell us a little bit about that um, about that Jewish festival. Okay, It's an important yearly festival that takes place. And she does a good job helping us understand what that festival is about. So let's listen to this. In a, particularly in a Christian perspective is what she's giving. Did you know God talked about a holiday that someday all nations will celebrate together? Your knee-jerk reaction might be to guess either Christmas or Easter. But it is none other than the Jewish festival of Sukkot also known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Somewhere between a telephone booth and your favorite corner booth at a local restaurant, but we'll get into that later. So what exactly is Sukkot? For starters, it's the last of the three pilgrimage feasts, Passover and Shavuot being the other two earlier in the year. For these feasts, the Jewish people travel on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem whenever possible to celebrate all together. But is Sukkot talked about in the Bible? The answer is yes. In Leviticus 23, God commanded Moses, speak to the people of Israel saying, on the 15th day of the seventh month, and for seven days is the feast of booths. When you have gathered the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall dwell in booths for seven days that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. 
I am the Lord your God. The whole purpose behind this holiday is to remember how God brought them out of slavery and into freedom while providing for them all along the way. And these are reasons to celebrate. The telltale sign that the holiday is underway are the Sukkot, booths, tabernacles that one can spot outside Jewish homes for the whole week. They are like decorated forts on their balcony or in the yard. Think camping. Well, it's more like glamping. People traditionally decorate them with harvest fruits, lights, and lots of color. It's a family affair and something that kids look forward to for months. Then they dwell in their sukkah for seven days, just as the Lord commanded to remember their time in the wilderness. And it gets even better. It wasn't exclusive for only the people of Israel to celebrate. This is something God expanded the camp from just his chosen people to all people. God encouraged Moses to gather all men, women, children, along with the foreigners of their land so they could learn to fear the Lord. Even way back then, God was training Israel to be a light to the nations. He desired to dwell with them during the Feast of Tabernacles. And hundreds of years later, he sent his son Emmanuel, which means God with us, to dwell with us forever. In the book of Revelation, we look forward to the somewhat constant Sukkot celebration, when God will once again dwell on earth with us. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. This powerful image of the sukkah, or tabernacle, serves to commemorate God's dwelling among his chosen people in the wilderness. It's also a beautiful invitation to all of us to dwell with him forever. And now that's something we're celebrating together. So this is the this is the festival that's going on in our text. Okay, the festival of booths is is kind of coming to an end. Um, there's actually some more that goes on. Um, we're kind of jumping over that, but we're going to be in the sort of the end part of that. All right. Um, so that's the festival. Um, and just to give you some more, a little bit more background than even what we got in the the uh, video there. Um, Jesus, the beginning of John 7, tells us that the feast or the festival of tabernacles, tents, booths, um, however you want to call it, it was coming near. So the video tells us that this festival celebrates two things, all right? There's two particular things that are being celebrated, and it has to do with the time and particularly the history, okay? So the first thing is, is that it's harvest season, right? It's always during the harvest season, that this this happens it's supposed to kind of happen it's supposed to line up with the end of the harvest all right so they've just been working for for weeks bringing in the harvest um and, and one thing I, I read about it is that um there was certain there were certain people who lived so far away from where the harvest fields were that they would actually set up their um, tents in the field right and it's because they were working so many hours in the day to get all the harvest in that they would actually set up tents around the harvest field and they would stay there at night and so that's kind of where it it, it started originating from is what i've read and so um so there's people staying in tents right up through it and then the week after is whenever they, they do this celebration where all of them stay in in tents and so hey how are you okay. Sorry. you're okay um 
but anyway, so, so that's what's going on. So it's, so, so think about that time period, like, especially if it's a good season and, and typically like if they're relying and depending on the Lord, the old Testament would say that that would result in being um, rewarded with a good harvest. Right. Um, and so, uh, so there's a, they're bringing in a harvest, which represents life, right? Represents abundance. Um, they, they've been, God has provided for them, right? And so along with that is that they're remembering that while they were in the wilderness, um, which kind of comes up quite a bit, right? In the New Testament, it's come up several times in John's gospel. While they're in the wilderness, they're in um, tabernacles, right? They're staying in tents. The, the temple of God is even a tabernacle, a tent, and so, um, so, they're, they're, so they're not only celebrating that the harvest is being brought in, they're remembering the way that God provided for them. And obviously the clear connection here is that they are celebrating the provision of God, right? So that's what the Feast of Tabernacles is about, is that God provides. Um, and it's to remind the people to depend on God for their provision. All right, so that's kind of the background. That's where, that's where we're at and what, what's being celebrated when this teaching takes place. And that can help us kind of understand where Jesus is getting at here. Um, so let's, let's look at John chapter 7. We're going to be reading first verses 37 through 44. This is the end of the festival, okay? So, On the la- sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry, so, so this would be like in the fall. Yeah. Which is harvest time. Mm-hmm. It's starting to get cooler. Uh, and so... That would be an interesting time to be outside in the temper. Hmm. Well, um, I don't know what exactly the weather would have been like in that part of the world. I guess since there are more desert, um, that it probably would be warmer. Yeah, I'm just saying if we, we celebrate it here, yeah. that would be October, September, October. Yes, yes. yes. be a little bit cool. All right, let's look at, yeah, so we're going to look at verses 37 through 44. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone who, everyone believe, believing in him. But the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. When the crowds heard him say this, some of them declared, Surely this man is the prophet we've been expecting. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others said, But he can't be. Will the Messiah come from Galilee? For the scriptures clearly state that the Messiah will be born of the royal line of David in Bethlehem, the village where King David was born. So the crowd was divided about him. Some even wanted to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Um, and I forgot to put verses on here, so I hope I'm stopping in the right spot. Um, so, what invitation does Jesus get? Jesus offer the people in these verses? What is the invitation?
Any other thoughts on that? What is he offering? The Holy Spirit. Well, not at that moment, but he's, he's right. offering, he's saying this is... Right, John. so John jumps in and gives us a little commentary and explains for us what Jesus means. Right? He says, when he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. All right, so um, I think I kind of already highlighted this, but let's make note of it again. When does Jesus do this? Uh, what'd you say? Right? So at the festival. Hmm. The very, so the very last day of the festival. So this, um, so this is a, another important hint. And so I want to make one more comment about the Festival of Booths um, because this is an important part of it. And, and um, again, so John's original audience, the people who originally read the book of John, were most likely Jewish Christians. And so a lot of this stuff that we're like digging into to find about the Festival of Booths, they already knew. They knew this stuff, right? It was a part of their everyday life. And so... It's, it can be helpful for us to understand specifically where Jesus is like coming from if we dig a little bit. Um, what's particularly worth noting is that on the last day of this festival particular, again, it's, it's seven days long and then the eighth day is the last day. Um, the, on the, that last day, um, it usually would have been on the Sabbath, would have fallen on the Sabbath. Um, it was, it was like, the, like, the, like this particular translation says it's the climax of the festival. It's the, it's the most important part of it. And Jesus' time on that last day, the most important day, the priests would proceed from the temple. They would be in the temple and they would come out of the temple and they would go to a particular pool of water. And they would scoop up some water in a basin and then they would bring it back and they would pour it on the altar. And it was almost like a water offering. It was a libation. Um, they pour, poured out water onto the altar. And this served as a reminder that even the water, you know, even the water is a, is, a, is a reminder of God's provision that God provides for the people. Um, any Old Testament stories come to mind about God providing water? Right. So this is like the same time period, right? They're constantly being reminded. They're, they're not so that they stay in the past, right? That's not the goal. The goal is, is that, that the people will live into where God is taking them by thinking about how God has provided for them in the past, right? That is, that's, a, that's a statement in the Old Testament quite a bit. You know, write, write these words on your heart. You know, um, put them on your doorpost, constantly being reminded of them so that you'll be so that you'll remember who to, who you should be depending on who you should rely on and so this last day of the festival particularly emphasized that they wanted to remind the people even the water is a is a gift of God's provision for us and so um, there's a there's a particular movement of water symbolizing God's provision being poured out onto the altar that even this water that we give it back to God because it belongs to God. And so it is out of that, it is out of that, everyone that is there would have just witnessed this happening, that Jesus stands up and shouted, yelled, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. Um, 
So what themes of the festival, just that we've been talking about, that the video may have talked about or anything, what themes of the festival kind of coincide with Jesus' own message? about the festival jump out to you? Oh, the message just here or overall? So, yeah, so basically, yeah, overall, yeah. I mean, what we've studied so far about John, maybe, um, I think the obvious connection I just gave you is that that there's this water being poured out um, and that they'll come back and repractice every year. Jesus is, is saying he's the living water, right? So that's the obvious connection. But is there anything else about the the the, the particular festival of booths that makes you think of Jesus's own message and, and kind of the gospel in general. I don't have anything. I, I know I'm really bad. I sometimes ask questions with a very particular answer in mind. I don't have a particular answer in mind. I should say that. <laughs> what do you think? What do you think regarding the harvest? Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Matthew's gospel and is really big on talking about seeds, right? Uh, being planted. You know, we hear of Jesus talking about, um, you know, the the harvest being plentiful, right? Workers are few. It's a particular popular line from Jesus. Well, on that theme of harvest, it mentions there. John mentions that that it's the Holy Spirit and we see what happens then we see what happens on we see what happens on in in Acts chapter 2 mm -hmm. there's a harvest mm. of souls sure yeah so if we look ahead to that and that's what Jesus is telling them is going to happen yep and and this harvest of souls happens mm -hmm. and this is the harvest so it's just like um, it it could all, mm. in hindsight, yeah, maybe twenty twenty or twenty ten even, mm -hmm. we can see that 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 could actually be tied into that. Yeah, yeah. There's a deep connection there. I think. Um, so, according to Jesus, who has the water flowing from within them? This is verse thirty eight. Who has the water flowing within them? Anyone who believes? Any other thoughts? Well, the way it's phrased there, I would say, he starts off by saying, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. So they come to him, and I believe that is actually referring to him, mm. to the Messiah, generally, to him specifically because he is the Messiah. Yeah. So um, these two these two views that it's anyone who believes in him or uh, it's Jesus. Um, this is part of the difficulty in translating from one language to another. Um, and that 
I don't. What translation do you have in front of you, Miss well, Becky? I was just reading from uh, the paper. Oh, okay, okay, gotcha. Um, do you have the NRSV? Um, do you have it turned? Do you have it opened up? I think I've seen your Bible and noticed it was NRSV. That's why I asked. Um, can you read that verse, verse? Um, yeah, thirty-eight for us. And let the one who believes in me drink, as the Scripture has said. Out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. So the NRSV chooses to specifically throw in a, a noun instead of the pronoun. The believer's, the believer's heart, out of the believer's heart will flow. Um, I don't want to spend, I could spend way too much time on this and I get bad about that, so I'm sorry. But I'll just say it this way. Um, in Greek, there's not punctuations like periods or commas like we have in English. Um, and sometimes they overuse what well, we would say in English, they overuse pronouns. And so they say he or it a lot more than referring back. And so it can kind of be a little bit unclear sometimes who's being referred to. And so there's actually times in John's gospel where it says he and people have come along and said, it seems like they're talking that John's talking about Jesus, but he could also be talking about this other person. It kind of gets kind of a little bit confusing. And so a lot of our English translations will... will Put what they believe it to be. So the NRSV is trying to clarify, but there's just as there's other translations. The Common English Bible, for instance, um, implies that it's actually talking about Jesus. But um, but that if we go by grammatical rules, mm -hmm. it's the believer because the the uh, pronoun refers to the last right. The latest right. noun. And so that's why the, the, the NRSV chooses to clarify by saying the believer again there. Um, I, I say that all to say that the reason I chose, I don't usually use the New Living Translation. I usually am either using Common English Bible or the NRSV. That's what I've usually put on the sheets of paper. Today I went with the New Living Translation because the New Living Translation and then the ESV, um, they both do a really good job of kind of keeping it ambiguous, like not exactly clear. Because the Greek is not exactly clear. Um, and I think that that's a good argument. That's probably an argument some people would make, that it's referring to the last person, and that was the believer. Um, but here it looks like it's, it could be either. And I guess my question to you is, is what do y'all think? I mean, do you think that Jesus is talking about the Messiah, or do you think he's talking about the one who believes in him? I'm I, I'm tossed up about it because because it can very it can very well be that he is speaking a prophecy of himself. We you know what? I'm going to clarify it for myself. Um, another thing about it is is there's no clear he's not referencing any Old Testament text very clearly. Um, okay. I guess I just want to, I, I like like yeah, linger yeah. On, on stuff like this because um, it can really kind of cause us to really think hard about what, what does Jesus mean by this? Is Jesus implying that, um, that when we come to Jesus, you know, there, I think we would obviously say that there's rivers of living water flowing from Jesus, right? We agree with that. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that there are rivers of living water flowing from believers? Do you believe that? Yeah, of course. This is a New King James Version. And anyway, the way I read it, he's saying, yes, it will flow from a believer. You know, that's the way I see it. Yeah. 
you know, if you believe in him, it flows from the believer. Yeah. You know, as the scripture has said, I mean, I Yeah. I think what's interesting is is that if we if we go back to the story that's most similar to this, it'd be the woman at the the Samaritan woman at the well. And what we find in that story is is that Jesus offers living water, and he very clearly says, even in that text, that um, when you receive the living water, that it will be so abundant in your life that it will bubble over and and bubble it will it will it will flow over in your life. And so I guess the reason that I'm lingering on it is I want us to think about what does that mean? What does it mean? Um, I think we can all agree that living water flows from Jesus. But what does it mean for living water to flow from the believer? What do you think that means? Kind of like being around like-minded people, you know what I mean? If they, if everybody believes the same thing, you know, if everybody believes in Jesus, you know, you can always tell when there's a uh, an oddball in the crowd, so to speak. You know what I mean? So if you know, <clears throat> common beliefs uh, tend to uh, attract crowds, you know. I guess so. Sure. Well, I guess what I'm saying, I don't know. But anyway, <clears throat> it's, uh, in other words, you would kind of be, yeah, I guess you'd kind of be like Jesus. I mean, you believe in Jesus, so why wouldn't you, you know? Yeah, so there's that community bond that, it would that be, takes place. Yeah, yeah. it'd be like a, I don't know, uh, be catching, so yeah. people would see it. Yeah. yeah, which that could apply not just to other believers, but to people who don't believe, right? Right. You know, that's our hope anyway, right? Any other thoughts on that? I think it's a powerful. I think it's a powerful image. Um, it's a powerful. Uh, it's powerful words and language for us to say that when we have, when we have truly received the living water, when we have truly had our life changed by Jesus, that that it bubbles up over and it and it pours out. Not not only are we are we being poured into by Jesus, but then we have such an abundance of life that that life pours out from us as well and into others. Um, I think that's, it's our mission, right? <laughs> it's our, it's our purpose. It's our hope. It's our goal as, as Christians. Um, I think that's why some people will say, you know, we, we talk about evangelism, like sharing the gospel. And a lot of times we might think of that primarily as speaking to others about Jesus, Right talking to others about Jesus when Jesus is done, telling the story of Jesus to others. Um, and part of me can't help but think that anybody could do that. <laughs> I, don't have to, I don't have to personally believe it. I could go out there and I could have like perfect lines written out and everything, and I could say those words. Um, but what we really want is for people to see our lives, right? And when they see that our lives are changed, that, that we've truly been transformed by Jesus. It's not just our words. That's important. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that evangelizing and in in like talking to people about Jesus is not important. That's important. But like um, that when that matches with the way that we live and, and the, the life, the abundant life that we have, right? We've been talking about that idea, that idea of having abundant life not just eternal life, something I'll get when I die, but abundant life here, now, today. Um, when we have that, um, that's a joy that, that, 
that um, bubbles up over our lives and pours into others as well. Anyway, any other thoughts on that before we move on? Yeah, I do think it's a it's a it's a great need. You know, um, we might look back in in the in world history and even in our country's history, and we hear about like the great revivals that took place in our country. and And I hear people say that all the time. We need a we need a revival in our country. We need a revival in our world, right? And and I believe that. But I wonder what I wonder if that's going to look the same as it did in you know the eighteen hundreds, the seventeen hundreds. It might look a lot more personal. Um, and, and personal interactions, and, and I think that um, I think that's okay. I think God works in new ways, and, and we should expect that and look for it um, and pray for it. All right, so John, is tell, John clarifies for us. He tells us that Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that would be given, um, and I think that that's the, the Spirit of life. Um, it is it is life giving the Holy Spirit that that is poured out into us, and I think that all that we talked about really is clarified when we think about it in that way that that it's the Holy Spirit giving life, um, and that we are receiving. Um, well, let's see. Let's go ahead and jump to our next next few verses. We're going to read verses forty five through the end of verse fifty two. When the crowds heard him say this, some of them declared, "Surely this man is the prophet we've been wait we've been expecting." Did I read this? I did read it. Sorry. Let me go down. It's when the temple guards. Yes. When the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and Pharisees demanded, "Why didn't you bring him in?" We have never we have never heard anyone speak like this. The guards responded. Have you been led astray too? The Pharisees mocked. Is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believes in him? This foolish crowd follows him, but they are ignorant of the law. God curse, God's curse is on them. Then Nicodemus, the leader who had met with Jesus earlier, spoke up. Is it legal to convict a man before he is given a hearing? He asked. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures and you will see for yourself. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. Um, so in verse 32, which is before the text that we read, verse 32, we hear about how the chief priest and the Pharisees, they send the temple guards to arrest Jesus. All right. So they, that, that's happened earlier in the, in the um, chapter. They, they've, sent, they've been sent to arrest Jesus. That's specifically what the temple guards were supposed to go do. In verse 45, we hear that once they've returned, they've returned without having arrested Jesus. Um, what excuse does the temple guard give for not arresting Jesus? What he spoke. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think? What do you think about this response? So maybe they were convinced by Jesus. Anything else? Anybody else have any thoughts on the guard's response? It 
something that's interesting is that later on in Jesus's actual trial, it's the temple guards that end up arresting Jesus. <laughs> the temple guards from Jerusalem, very likely these same men, <laughs> right? I think that's an interesting thought. Um, obviously, a lot happens between now and then, but any other thoughts on what their what their response would be? I mean, these guys are like they're supposed to do what the temple leaders tell them to do, and they just don't do it. <laughs> so maybe it's not the same ones. Maybe they get fired. I don't know. Um, any other thoughts? Why do you think that? Um, why do you? I mean, you know, you mentioned that maybe they're convinced by Jesus's words. Um, I just wonder what. Um, it seems like a lot to risk for them not to do what they're supposed to told, do, right? Well, yeah, maybe they thought, you know, hey, this guy really hasn't done anything wrong. <laughs> maybe they're making judgments. <laughs> yeah, you know. But, you know, yeah, soldiers, good soldiers fall over, you know. Mm-hmm. Look at verse 37 where he says, who may never believe our good mm-hmm. You ever heard any that out of his heart will flow into the water. He believes in me. He never heard a politician talk like that. Or yeah. Professor. Or right. Um, yeah. They kind of have a different drift. Yeah. That's a great point. I mean, that's literally what they say. We've never heard anyone talk like this before. That's literally the excuse they give. And I mean... You're exactly right. We don't hear people talk like that. <laughs> yeah, they probably were afraid to. Yeah. They knew something could happen to them, mm. possibly, <clears throat> because they, after listening and hearing and yeah. listening to him, they knew he was the yeah. Messiah. And yeah. Or maybe they're somewhere like Nicodemus is. We see Nicodemus in this text again. Y'all remember Nicodemus is the one who comes to Jesus by night. He's a Pharisee. He doesn't want to be seen with Jesus. And we slowly see this. And we talked about this when we saw him in chapter 3. But we only see him three times in John's gospel. This is the second time. And so this is like almost like um, Nicodemus is on his own journey in, in the gospel. And it's kind of interesting. But maybe the... Maybe the guards have a similar kind of thought about Jesus. Maybe they're not fully convinced by him. Maybe there's some fear there of if 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 he's telling the truth that it is out of him that living water flows. I don't know about y'all, but I don't want to be responsible for arresting the person that living water flows out of, right? So maybe there's a level of fear. Maybe they're not maybe they're not quite transformed themselves, but perhaps they are um a bit fearful of what what could come of that. They seem to be more um, convinced by Jesus's words than the commandments, the command from the Pharisees. So I think that's interesting. Um, so the chief priest and the Pharisees, they seem to, to really dislike Jesus. Um, and it's really growing and growing and growing. Why do you think that is? I think it would be different for, for, for different ones, but if, you know, the way they spoke there was he is, it, basically, have you read the law? Have you read the Torah? It, it, it's the, according to their interpretation of that, mm-hmm. he doesn't fit. Yeah. 
Right. And their interpretation is is uh, is, is one from over over centuries of interpreting yeah. and reinterpreting and misinterpreting. Mm -hmm. But they they don't according to their interpretation of prophets. Mm -hmm. No prophet comes from Galilee. That they so so some of them are just honestly this guy is yeah probably. I would say honestly, this guy is going against the law and finish sure. this up. So there's some. You think there might be some genuine concern from the Pharisees? There, I would say there's some some fear involved. Yeah. Because this is a guy that is stirring up the masses. Yeah. And the Romans don't take kindly to that. Right. So they're wanting to keep Romans. The, they want to keep the Romans out of their business. Right. This guy will bring the Romans into their business. Yeah. And so there's that fear of that. There's a combination. I'm sure there were, there were some of them that were probably jealous yeah. at his ability to, to, to draw the crowd. Yeah. That I think they, that, yeah. I think the text tells us that at one point that there's some jealousy among them. Right. Yeah. right. And so, so that's, it's a complicated thing. Sure. With yeah. several things, but I think they're amongst. I think all of them were probably fearful of what Rome's going to do if they don't right. do something about it. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I want to look at verses forty-eight through forty-nine again. Um, hopefully, I'll get it right on here since I don't have verse numbers. Um, verse forty-eight and forty-nine. Is there the Pharisees ask this question? Is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believes in him? What do you think that that question implies? Well, it's like, are you with us or against us? Okay. You know, sort of thing. Where I feel like yeah. they're asking that question because they want to kind of get a sense of okay, which one of y'all actually believe? Okay. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So maybe we crucify yeah. you the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, right. Like I said, like-minded people. Yeah. You know, there you go. You know, <clears throat> you know and they also mentioned that uh, the ignorance of the people, mm. uh, not mm. knowing the law. Yep. You know, and whose fault is that? You know, if they don't know the law, because you know, some, what I gather that you know, some of them are commoner. You know, they didn't read the Bible. Mm. They didn't read the text. They were they were relying on somebody else to yeah. interpret. Yeah, that's true. You know, and even all the way up until, like, uh, King Henry, you know, he was, right. you know, he was one that's noted to say that everybody should read it for themselves. Mm -hmm. So whose fault is it if they're really ignorant of the law yeah. anyway? Yeah. You know. Yeah, that's a good point. So that, that I hadn't even thought about that irony that they're saying they're ignorant of the law and they're the teachers of the law right there. <laughs> so whose fault is it? That's a, that's so a great point. Maybe the soldiers were just as ignorant. Yeah. Exactly. You know what I mean? Because you know, they, you know, they follow orders. They might not know all the laws that Pharisees yeah. or whoever would expect them yeah. to know. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's also a threat in pride here, implied here. Because I can just see it. I can see them saying to the guards, have you been led astray too? And then right after yeah. that, is there a single of us? Is, is there, are there any of you Pharisees that believes in him too? Right. It's like, they're ignorant, are you too? Yeah. It's, it's, it's like a, it's a loaded so, question. So I, I think, sorry, go ahead. A little bit of arrogance, maybe. 
Arrogance. Yeah. I think there is some arrogance in there. Um, and this is another one of those like translation kind of notes that some translations like want to emphasize that, that their question is more um, rhetorical. Like they know the answer to the question. They're saying like, why would you believe what Jesus is saying? Do any of us believe? No. Right. So why would you believe? Um, what's ironic is, is that then Nicodemus, a Pharisee, mm-hmm. speaks up and might be kind of like, he's not saying that he believes, but at the same time, he's like, we should probably like at least hear him out, you know? And so it's kind of ironic that Nicodemus is on his own journey of belief in this, in this moment. And they're asking that question almost like they're assuming that the answer is no, none of us believe. So, so their logic probably is, why would you believe? None of your law, none of the people who give the law, who teach the law believe. So you should trust us, right? You should trust us over Jesus. You should trust us because if we affirm Jesus was the Messiah, then you could believe it. Then you could accept it. Um, and I think that that's an interesting thought. Um, so this text here says this foolish, this foolish crowd follows him. And we know that not everyone in the crowd is following him. Some are convinced by it. Some are not. This foolish crowd follows him, but they are ignorant of the law. God's curse is on them. Um, I don't have it pulled up, but in John chapter 5, Jesus has almost this exact same conversation with the Pharisees. <laughs> he says, you search the scriptures um, to know, to have, to find life, and yet the scriptures point to me. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 5. It's a very powerful text. You search the scriptures looking for life, but the scriptures point to me. And Jesus basically says the exact same thing. Because you refuse to understand them as, the, as such that I am, the, I am the way, the truth, the life, um, you are cursed. <laughs> Jesus says God's curse is on you for not believing as leaders. Um, and here they are almost repeating what was already spoken to them by Jesus um, to each other about the crowd. And so I think that's an interesting thought to think that like there's obviously... I think it's complicated, right? We kind of emphasize that, but like, can you imagine being there? Can you imagine being the Pharisee who really does study the law a lot? Um, now, we're, we're not told here, we're not even told in John's gospel, but what the rest of the gospels proclaim to us is that Jesus isn't from Galilee. He lived in Galilee, so he's from Galilee, but he wasn't born there. He actually was born in, in Bethlehem, but the Pharisees don't really seem to care about that, right? They're not really, they're not really actually interested in about that. Check facts. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not actually, and maybe that's a part of what Nicodemus is saying. Like, maybe we should hear from them, and they're not interested in that. They don't care about that. I wonder, uh, I wonder if any of those were there 18 years earlier when a 12-year-old was explaining the right, law yeah, to them. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting idea, interesting thought. Well, um, let's see, I think I've kind of gotten to all of my questions. There's other questions on there. Um, but I do want to, I do have a minute or two to, to look at these other texts for us to, to think about how we apply this. Um, what do you think it means for the Spirit to be actively springing up from the believer's life? What do you think that means? Maybe we talked about this a little bit, but I want to I revisit it. What do you think it means and what do you think it looks like? Yep. Well, you 
that's very good. Yeah. Very good. Any other thoughts on that question? How does it look in our lives? It looks like people knowing that you're a Christian without you having to tell them. Hmm. If you have to tell them, then you're not doing something right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's letting your actions uh, basically it's, it's it's when you when you have the spirit within you and you let the spirit work through you. Yeah. That he radiates a a uh, oh what's what I'm trying to say anyway it's the spirit yeah. of God working through us that that allows people to see Christ in us yeah and be able to see that see that living water. And it, that comes down to people start asking questions, and you can sure yeah. explain it to them, and mm -hmm. and that doesn't mean you don't bring it up yourself, you know. When, yeah. When your sure. Time is right, but yeah. Yeah, I think that's good, and I, I I encourage us to keep reflecting on that. What does that look like? Um, um I've got many more thoughts. I, I'll just read this last thought um, to you. Um, I'm kind of wondering and been thinking some about how do we access the living water. Um, and it feels kind of, I don't like that language because it sounds like it's almost like we just need to go to the store and buy something. And, I don't, and that's obviously not Talks. it. But I want us to think about what does it look like to actively um, continue to seek that, that source of life that is Jesus. Is it just a one and done sort of thing? We asked for Jesus into our heart when we were a kid and we're good to go, we're done? Or is there more to it? Is there is there continually like receiving that pouring into our lives and how do we do that how do we what are actual like practical hands-on things that we can do to 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 practice that and and i just kind of make a comment and it's on there but you know scripture um our, our bible our tradition as christians have have we've been handed practices many practices that we can we have access to that we can do um, that help us to receive that life-giving um, water that jesus offers us and so I want you to think about it because um, next week is actually Ash, Ash Wednesday. Hope that y'all be here. We're going to have an Ash Wednesday service um, in, in the sanctuary. We're going to all be together for that service. And so um, it'd be really neat if we all looked for and sought a new practice to take on. I know a, a common practice to do during the season of Lent, which Ash Wednesday is the start of Lent, which goes until Easter common practices to do a fast to choose something to fast from and if you want to if you want to do that i encourage you to try that um there's other practices that you could bring into your life there's lots of great practices if you're if you normally just read scripture and pray those are great keep doing them don't stop doing that please um but there's also other other ways we can go about reading scripture so if you're if you're used to just reading straight through the bible maybe you would pick up um, a, a closer, more in-depth reading of text. I know, Kenneth, you do a lot of that. Really in-depth study of Scripture. That's a great way to study study the Bible, really in-depth. Um, there's other things like Lectio Divina. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but it's really pouring over one 
one text, like really one scripture, looking at and seeing what words jump out to you, stuff like that. I mean, if you're interested in that, you can ask me. Pastor Kevin probably knows about some of that stuff as well, and, and Pastor Mary Elizabeth. If you're looking for a practice, a new sort of spiritual practice to incorporate into your life, we'd love to talk to you about that. Um, otherwise, just keep studying and keep keep participating in church and keep coming here. Like Those are all great practices that I, I truly believe in um, are ways that we access the living water. All right. I was thinking of something. Yeah. So much of the time we don't see the Sabbath. Yeah. I mean, I, we used to do a lot more mm-hmm. at home when I was younger. Yeah. And it wasn't without it. But, I mean, we couldn't have we couldn't have any uh, outside newspapers or anything. We didn't get those. Yeah. So we wouldn't be reading that. Yeah. And um, we take our naps on Sunday afternoon. There you rest. go. But things that. Yeah, that's great. I, I love I love the idea of practicing Sabbath and um, and any like any practice, anything that we do can become a little bit legalistic. Right. If we're not careful, like it can just become something we do. And that can happen with Sabbath. It can happen with our scripture and our and our prayer as well. Um, so so. Like going into practices like Sabbath, understanding why, like all of that stuff that you just listed is great, not for legalistic reasons, because God said, so I'm going to do it, but because God has intention and hope for us when we do that, right? When we remove our, or when we remove some of those things from our life, it allows us to have less anxiety. I, and, and I don't know if it was as bad when you were growing up, but I can't imagine like the anxiety that we all feel and have when we look at the news. So taking the news break on, on the Sabbath is a great idea. Um, yeah. And so a sabbatical from the news might be good. I've been doing that the last two years. Yeah. 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 Not spending money. Yeah, exactly. And so those are, those aren't just because God said so, but those are good for our lives. We receive life in that. You're exactly right. We, we don't have the anxiety of, we don't have that pressure and we're also not, maybe we're, we're less prone to give in to greed or, or gluttony and things like that um, when we practice that on a regular basis. I think it's good. We're constantly being reminded of that. Um, so there's good in it, not just legalism, right? All right, well, let's pray and be dismissed. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for, for your love and your grace and your life flowing um, from you. Lord, we ask that you would help us, oh God, to continually be poured into by your life, your life-giving um, um, presence, your life-giving spirit. Help us, O oh Lord, um, to receive it well. Would you teach us and train us continually um, throughout our lives from here on um, how to receive and how to, to accept um, your life-giving spirit, your life-giving water that is pouring into our lives. Help us, O oh Lord, as your people, as your community, to continue to be those people, Lord, who receive you. Help us also to be people that that water just bubbles up over into um, into others' lives as well. Help us to be um, means of your life-giving spirit in the world. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.